Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. This is the second of our For What It's Worth series in collaboration with Turnstile. And it's an opportunity to pick apart the reality of the sponsorship sales process on both sides of the negotiation table. To do this, we're pleased to welcome Celine Delgenez and Rob Grenville-Jones. Celine is Global General Manager of Specialist Sports at Adidas, and Rob is Commercial Partnerships Director at the English Rugby Football Union, the RFU. Joining us is Dan Gaunt, General Manager at Turnstile. This is a conversation about trust, how it's cultivated, how quickly can it be established, ego, both personal and corporate, intangibility, the role of gut feeling versus rationality, the role of emotion and the underrated job of selling the deal to the board on the sponsor side. Finally, how a deal is communicated to the general public via the media, how reliable are the prices quoted and what are the games that are played on both the buy and sell side of the equation. The first episode in the For What It's Worth series featured Juliet Slot, Commercial Director of Arsenal, and is available to download for free in the Unofficial Partner archive. And if you like sports business newsletters, you'll really like the Unofficial Partner version that goes to thousands of people across global sport every Thursday. Again, sign up via unofficialpartner.com. talk about the nature or the anatomy of a sponsorship deal and we've got see Celine from Adidas we've got Rob from the RFU so you're a sort of proxy into the mindset of the those two sides of the table and that's the game that we're playing and then Dan is the coldly rational third party he's going to bring a sort of more dispassionate view of what's going on but we want to get into what happens and we want to unpick some of the issues that are going to be generic to everyone listening in the sports business who, you know, sponsorship is the central lifeblood. So let's get going. Dan, I'm going to ask you just to sort of set this up. What are the issues? Celine wants to buy this thing and Rob wants to sell this thing. And what would you advise us to talk about? What are just the parameters of this conversation from your point of view? Yeah, sure. So I guess at at Turnstar, we've we've got a really um, clear, single-minded focus on really trying to determine what the fair market value of a deal is, what rights are included in that deal, what's being offered and what's being bought, and trying to get a, a very good understanding of, of what we think the fair market value of that is. Now, there's, there's a, a whole um, number of, I guess, metrics out in the market which have been used traditionally, which is like you know your, your media equivalency metrics, and um, they certainly have a, a place and a role to play in the market. Um, but they, they do leave you guessing a little bit when it comes to what is a recommended transaction price and, and what should I expect to pay for this deal. Can I ask a question on that just before we, we get going? So fair market value. My assumption is if I am Rob, and I'll introduce Rob in a minute from the RFU, but if I'm Rob, I want as high a price as I can get. And if I'm Celine, I want as low a price as I can get. That's my assumption in the dynamic that's going to go that take place. So my question to you, Dan, before we pass over is, why does Rob care about the fair market price when he actually is selling something and just wants as high a price as possible? So from a rights holder's perspective, it's it's a really important piece of information to have because clearly you're, you're going to go into a negotiation, as you say, Richard, to try and extract the maximum commercial value. But as you get into that conversation, you want to be aligned internally on what you think the value of the rights are so that when there's a, a deal on the table to be had, you're not spending a lot of time 
circling around internally, going to your board to get sign off on a deal and then a lot of kind of back and forth on is that a good price, is it not a good price? So you want to have a really clear view in your mind as to to what it's worth. And then um, I guess ultimately um, there's a pitch strategy which comes together to to try and maximise the value of that deal and, and you've got the right information in your kind of back pocket to, to make the right decisions in a, in a timely fashion. The other piece about it is that I guess you want detailed and transparent data around the value of all of the different rights that make up that package. So as you get into a, a good conversation between a, a buyer and a seller, if it transpires that the you know, the buyer's marketing objectives are actually slanted towards um, a particular type of rights and they want to kind of dial up the, the quantity of those rights, then you can very easily do that by going, well, we know actually really clearly what the value of those rights are versus the others. So if we add some more of this and take away some of this, then actually this is how it kind of edits and, and alters the price. And we can kind of do that very quickly and transparently on the fly. From a buyer's perspective, it's similar. Again, you want that kind of transparency. So you want to know what the value of different types of rights are. And, and so you can kind of help tailor that package. But equally, from a sponsorship manager's perspective, ultimately, if you've identified a property, you, you clearly are interested and you, you want to do that deal. But to navigate that through an internal procurement process can be challenging and, and very time consuming. And so, again, having that kind of really clear view on, on what you think the fair market value is just enables you to navigate that process so that you don't get to a really good place with the rights holder, but then things fall over as you try and kind of get your ducks in a row internally. Okay. So where should we go first is the question. So should we go to Rob at the RFU to talk about the sales side and how that develops? Or does the process start with Celine on the buy side of this equation where she is identifying opportunities in the marketplace? Rob, I'm going to come to you first of all. So just based on what Dan was saying and how the framing and the characterization of that in terms of, of the process, mm -hmm. just for a moment, what are you selling? So it's rugby, it's England rugby. Yeah. But broader than that, just give us a minute on what it is that you're bringing to the marketplace. We bring to the marketplace a relationship with a national governing body. So the owners of the game, want for a better phrase, of rugby within England. And I think that is multifaceted with multiple opportunities beneath that headline banner, really. We take a very consultative approach. And I think when we actually go in to speak to brands and go to the market, you know, and we open up our box of what we have to offer, people are actually quite surprised. You know, everyone focuses in on, you know, Eddie Jones's team for the men and Simon Middleton's team for the Red Roses. But beneath that, we've got age grade, we've got community clubs, grassroots programs, opportunities around Twickenham Stadium, etc., etc. There's a plethora of opportunities. So the one thing that people surprises people want is that range of opportunities to meet multiple objectives. It's not one size fits all. So going back to some pricing questions points about valuation we very rarely early doors even talk about price it's that kind of who we are what we do how can we help your business needs by our plethora of rights and benefits and we really take it from there we are in a really unique um, space as the guardians of the game and with that we're not for profit so everything that we go and pitch to a multinational brand or a national brand we can hand and heart say it's going back into rugby whether that's funding the men's seniors or women's seniors or it's helping support local community rugby clubs who frankly in the last couple of years had a really hard time of it your money helps keep the lights on at Twickenham as well so I think it's a really compelling story in terms of levels of rights scale of rights community and actually where the money goes so that last bit is a in terms of the RFU and and again using that as a proxy into just governing bodies more generally mm. that bit the non-profit bit there is a sort mm. of 
think of the children aspect to the sales pitch, which is in there. And that's a counterpoint to say some of the more privately run sport. You know, if you're in the marketplace for sport and you're in there with Formula One or people are making choices between you and other types of property that are more, much more commercially focused, Premier League mm-hmm. football teams, for example, that non-profit element is a significant part of your sales pitch. Is what you're saying? Yeah, it surprises a lot of people. We're seen as a big commercial beast, the biggest union arguably in the world. And actually being able to tell that story, whether it's making sure more kids play rugby, whether it's more people stay in rugby longer term, whether it's about actually, you know, one of our key strands of going forward as we host the Women's World Cup in 25 is developing the women's and girls game. All stuff that, frankly, you know, we as a business will start talking a lot more about as we develop some of our programmes and plans further. But it's basically making sure rugby not only survives, but thrives within England. Okay, brilliant. Right. So that's framed you to an extent. And now... Mm -hmm. Celine, I'm going to bring you into the conversation. Now, obviously, everyone in the world knows Adidas, the name Adidas. They don't know what you do as a job. So where do you play in this? What's your sort of start off point when you're looking at the idea of, of identifying sponsorship opportunities? And do you even call them? Do Adidas refer to it as sponsorship or is it a different, different word? Well, so let me start first. I, I personally look after especially sports, which is tennis, rugby, Olympic Games, and swim, cycling, indoor sports. I have a variety of sports. So I'll stay within the perimeter of what I control, right? When with my team, we look at sponsorship. We actually look at partners, yeah? Because it's not, in the notion of sponsorship, there's the idea about it's a money deal. And for us, it's more than that. You need to find the partner that is aligned with one, your strategic ambition, the values you want to represent, obviously the sport, potentially territories. There are several filters that help to identify who would be a good partner to be part of our team of partners and therefore represent the brand. Because ultimately, whoever we sign is a representative of the brand. And our job, just like for Rob to be the guardian of the RFU, we are the guardian of those three stripes. Yeah. So for us, whoever wears the three stripes needs to wear them with pride, needs to understand the history behind the brand. Obviously, we have a strong legacy in sport and in credibility. So that's how we approach it by looking at what I call the filters from a credibility standpoint, performance, but also all other aspects that are linked to our strategy. And if I can jump back to something you've said, Richard, and, and I hope you allow, one of the elements of why we also need data, and you said, well, why would it matter for Rob? Because he wants the most and Celine wants to buy the less. It's first and foremost as well, because it is a competitive land market and competitive market. And you never have only one proposition available at the time. So internally, let's use tennis to not be in rugby, but to use tennis. There's several tennis players every year that are looking for sponsorship. And on our side, we need to decide which one do we want to have as a partner and how much are we willing to invest either within the category or within one individual. And that's where the benchmark about what is the the value on the market is critical because Internally, I will have to pitch for budget, but so we'll do football, so we'll do basketball, et cetera, et cetera. And when you have a tangible base for negotiation, it actually also helps the internal conversation, but also the comparison between athletes and allow us to say, well, you know what, on the market, 
that partner represents more for X, Y, Z reason, it's not a, it's not our decision. That's the market value. And you see a lot of disparities between sports as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's, that's where it helps. So I wanted to come back on that because yeah. there's that notion about market, right? Uh, you can buy a Ferrari or Lamborghini or a Rolls Royce, um, but you have a choice. And, and that needs to help you to make that choice. And can you just, before we move on from this, the internal conversation, because obviously we, I look at Adidas from the outside. I've got, you know, a various idea of what it does in lots of different bits of the world and lots of different bits of sport. But when you then say, right, okay, I want this property, this unofficial partner partnership that I'm going to, I've seen in the marketplace. What do you then have to do? Who do you have to convince? And what do you, what do they want to hear? Well, I need to convince a lot of people, um, but more specifically the board, I would say. And what I need to be able to present to them is how would that partner support the strategy we've established for the coming years? Why is it the best partner compared to others? And once we have that partner, what type of partnership can we establish? So it, it, again, I go. it goes beyond for us to just provide the best products, yeah? Mm-hmm. It's integration into campaigns. It is activation at a local level. It is relevance to consumer when we're speaking either digital or physical engagement with consumers through facilities, events, matches, etc. Of course, there is a, a monetary component of it. Of course, it's like everything. But there's all the other aspect about what does it mean? What can we do? What do they represent? Where do they want to play? What is their aspiration as well? Because that needs to come in in common and and find a common path. Because if one wants to be a blue color and one wants to be a red color, Mm. well, that's not going to work. Because if one wants to be blue, Mm. you end up purple. That doesn't work. So it's it's where you need to define, is that the right partner? And that's what you need to justify in the internal process to then get the buy-in, to then get what we call the calf sign, then to move forward. Yeah, I, I totally understand where things coming from. And I think from our side of the fence, if when we're looking at potential partners, it's, it is those mutual values. It's brands who really want to, some of the stuff I've talked about earlier about, you know, really promoting the game and actually being active partners in doing, doing that. And I think the other piece is really, you know, not all of our partners fall into this bucket, but the majority of them do is actually how do they have a tangible role to play um, in delivering rugby? So, you know, if you're looking at Adidas, who's, you know, our sports footwear partner, we get some cash from them, but we get VIK in terms of product, which goes to our elite teams, but also the community game in terms of the guys and girls out there delivering community rugby coaching and development and staff at HQ. So, most of our partners actually have that tangible story to tell from the get-go in terms of what are we actually doing and providing for England rugby to make rugby work. We have some pure standalone partners who are just there for the marketing and maybe to find a slightly more old school in terms of we like the hospitality and the tickets and the LEDs and all that stuff. But we find our deepest and richest partners, as, as I've just described, how we work with like Adidas. And we've got a good track record. I think going back to the value piece is, you know, we, we like to renew our partners and we're very successful, touch would have 
making sure that our four-year partner becomes eight years, becomes 12 years. And without showing off too much, we're very proud that O2, when their current deal runs out, um, will be 30 years with England rugby. Just on that though, Rob, it's an interesting point because the role, Adidas is is in some ways an easy conversation Mm. because it's obvious what Adidas are going to provide. If I am whatever the category is, sometimes those stories feel quite manufactured, don't they? And it's quite difficult sometimes. There's a leap that I have to make sometimes that that credibility and i'm just wondering if that story is a weak one but it still makes a lot of money for you presumably you don't really care you're just gonna there's the there's the commercial will override that it's a nice to have rather than a must-have is that does that be fair yeah and i think when we say nice to have more often than not we achieve it which is is great but again we look at partners you know we, we, we like partners who activate right we don't want partners sitting on categories and rights that don't communicate to the game and, you know, drive mutual benefits. So, you know, if we're not having that tangible interface, you know, integration of products, whether it's cars from Honda or apparel from Umbro or shoes from, you know, sports shoes from Adidas, you know, what's their commitment also above to market the game and hopefully drive those share values and get to those communities we want to expand to. That's critical. We look at it holistically as part of the overall review process and approval process that goes to our exec committee and then our board. Yeah. Dan, is there's a, I've got a question here for you, which is just jumps off that in terms of does data help this question? Does the the story of the sponsorship sometimes does a quite a lot of the work? And last time, you know, in the last episode, we talked about in the intangible of sponsorship, which is, you know, obviously quite difficult to quantify when you're talking about data. It feels much more emotional. It feels more heart than head but it feels real. How does that play when you're now the guy they say, well, yeah, but can you put a number on this? How does that work? Yeah, no, good, good question. I think data has a has a really important role and an, an increasingly important role in, in how this all works. And and really, I guess the aim with with data and, and providing the best possible data is is actually to take some of the emotion out of some of these conversations. So, um, what we're we're aiming to do by providing you know, great data to our clients on both the buy and the sell side is is giving that real clear kind of clarity that enables them to kind of communicate and have that kind of non-emotional discussion around the pricing of a deal, which ultimately frees them up to spend their time discussing exactly the things that Celine and Rob have just been talking about, kind of building a great partnership, looking for the right values, talking about how we're going to activate this. Oh, that's great that you want to do this to kind of um, activate your brand. We're really interested in doing that as well, because we think it could have a really positive impact on grassroots or, or whatever it might be. So I think it's, having good data just helps everyone know where they stand and it kind of removes that kind of emotion. And and I think often we see where partners don't have good data, things can really slow down. They can grind to a halt because there's a, you know, there's almost a bit of a game of poker going on. And I, I guess another example that, that we saw a lot um, during the pandemic was obviously there's a lot of deals that have been done that probably didn't have the, the right level of data and transparency in them around pricing and so when all of a sudden the world changed very quickly there was no crowds there was often games being cancelled rescheduled different time slots um, different channels and uh, yeah completely different um, environment through which those partnerships were being played out there was a lot of very difficult conversations that went on and we experienced a, you know a few kind of fractured relationships as a result of that and that was really because the right data wasn't there the right kind of practices weren't there to understand what the implications of these changes were and then to kind of build a good plan off the back of that that everyone was kind of clear and aligned on there's a few things here there's about there's an element of trust 
and the, you know how fragile that might be in the relationship. There's also, and by trust, it could mean trust in the data, trust in the numbers that were presented, what the rights holder sold before COVID and whether or not that then stood up when they said, right, okay, I'm going to pay back a certain amount or I need, you know, you're going to claw back various rights. Presumably that was based on the data that they offered up at the sales moment. You said we were the third, fifth biggest event in the world. And it turns out I'm not going to pay you back that. <laughs> that's just, you know, that was just a sales story. So that's the, or anecdotally, that what that's the stuff coming back from the industry at the moment. What do we think about that? Because it talks to the the credibility of data. Because, and we all know that if I'm if I'm selling this property, I'm going to find the biggest data sheet that I can find, and I'll put it in front of Celine, and and fingers crossed, she won't interrogate it too deeply. Celine, I'll, I'll go for it first. Maybe I think that's where. That's where having an independent partner to support you with data is actually giving you the the realistic view about is it fair or not. And and we've worked with Dan where I've commissioned to get the data and the analysis on one partner that we work with. And I've actually recommended to the partner to use Trendstyle. So we have the two sides of the coin, but it's the same coin. So we're looking at the same thing from different angles. Are we aligned? And when you create that, that's where when trust is built. And I agree. I think you, you need to think about the worst case scenario before it happens. It's a bit like a marriage, right? You'd rather do the prenup before you go into a divorce. Um, it's easier to negotiate after. But that's because you start from a base that's a common base and a base where everyone is in a good place. And so... For me, the third party is providing that, an objective view on looking at what is what is the reality, what are the facts, bringing the facts to the table. And I've said that before, we have data analysis in every single company nowadays. But data, it's like polls before the election. You can make them go one way or the other. It's data, yeah? You, it's, it's just how you pull them. When you have an independent third party bringing it to the table and explaining you, you still need to ask questions and challenge. But at least you build an honest, authentic perspective on what it is. And it does help to build a case on is it worth it or not for us to go after it based on those facts. So that's my perspective on it. And, and that's why I think the third party element is so critical. Yeah, and I'd probably just echo that from Celine. I think I've experienced in the last two years kind of two buckets of work. During COVID time, it was all about renewals and we had a very successful run rate in that. And actually, we didn't have to rely too much on data, if at all. It was all about the last four years with respect to partners, maybe even longer given the term of their, their relationships with us. So that was purely on delivery and trust and relationships. And as we're coming out of COVID or have come out of COVID and we're going much more... Um, you know, aggressively into the market in terms of new partnerships and started working with Dan and his team, that's where that data is really proving successful for us by way of, to Celine's point, independent, verified data points. We can all debate it and everyone can go off and get their other data points, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I'm finding in the last certain six months, beginning of this year, that um, it really helps form and focus a discussion, which actually, to a point made earlier, cuts to the chase and certain discussions much quicker than you otherwise would be. I think to, you, to your point just now, um, Richard, and, and probably to Celine's a bit as well, where kind of having that independent view, we, we did see, um, I don't want to kind of hark back to, to COVID or the pandemic <laughs> too much, but we did see a couple of rights holders get themselves into quite a pickle during that period where 
they'd kind of sold the deal based on, I guess, using kind of some um, very large media equivalency valuations for certain rights, um, saying, you know, this is how much media value is going to get delivered through this right and so on. And then when it came to the fact that those rights couldn't actually get delivered, um, the brand understandably was saying, okay, well, but you told me this was the, the amount of media value I was going to get from this. So in theory, you should kind of compensate me for that. And then there was a bit of, oh, no, 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 I, actually, you know, we need to look at the fair market value of that rather than the media equivalency. So kind of, I think having that kind of really clear understanding of what is the actual market value of these rights when we're, when we're going into it means that, you know, if and when uh, force majeure events do occur, you've got a really solid base to kind of have a collaborative conversation about that that isn't kind of too, hopefully too commercially impactful for the rights holder. When these assets are what we'd call traditional sponsorship assets so a shirt a stadium naming rights deal a perimeter board some tickets all of that has got a big data bank behind it which i can see would would work very effectively now then you push into other areas digital for example rob what other than the traditional suite of things that a governing body sells what else do you think the rfu or a governing body is going to then evolve into what areas do you think are going to be hot sponsorship assets of the next few years yeah no it's a good question i think for us um and we're embarking upon it now is our digital data and content strategy so a lot of work's going in at the moment we don't have the answers to some of the questions you've made there richard but you know we are running out which is a positive thing of certain rights and traditional rights and assets so how do we move more into the digital data and content piece from sponsorship rights benefits, opportunities for our partners to engage greater audiences, CRM, social channels, et cetera, et cetera. So that's something we're working on significantly now, and this will be a project for the next four or five years. So some of this inventory, what we may be doing, won't come on, online for two, three, four years. But what the number one piece we also have been doing recently um, is around understanding who's coming to Twickenham better. So, you know, COVID in some regards sort of was blessing disguised by way of accelerated our stadium app. We're now fundamentally now understanding who's coming to Twickenham and who those people are. Previously, we didn't given the way our tickets are distributed. So again, maybe answering your question a bit more concisely is like, what can we do around, you know, fan engagement? What can we do around, you know, our ticketing app, which is first and foremost, but how did that maybe grow into a wider England rugby app? and content and licensing retail and other sales opportunities for our partners. And I think understanding who our audience are and in terms of our data. I think one thing, people get very fixated on the size of a database, but we're finding actually it's the quality of the database. So is it a discerning audience for our partners, which actually reaps more benefit for them? Might have a million people, but actually it's only 100,000 relevant. Let's focus on those people, whether that's offers, business development opportunities, fellow partners, other commercial entities we work with, whether they're box holders, people we've got joint ventures with, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that digital space is really important, but then there's also, without kind of going off at the tangent too much, the question is actually how do we kind of create a better business ROI to our partnership? Something we wouldn't necessarily contract to by way of results, but certainly it's becoming more and more of a conversation in terms of how can we help facilitate that to what scale and across what channels? And that's something we frankly welcome because we need to have those proof points and case studies to show that actually a partnership is, you know, to Celine's point, is a partnership rather than a sponsorship. Celine, let's just bring you in on that. So the, the digital question and the future question in terms of how this is going to evolve, what's Adidas's sort of worldview on this is where they see digital assets evolving and of what use they are, what, what job they do. I'll take a step back. Within all this conversation, 
it's about being consumer obsessed. Yeah. And, and to be consumer obsessed, that means you understand what is the consumer consuming? Where can you engage with them? How deep do you connect with them pending channels? And therefore, what's the outcome you can gain? And what we know is obviously the consumer landscape and usage is changing. So what used to be traditional TV, and you knew that that was the type of population watching on TV, the consumption is very different. The younger generation is looking at much shorter time. They don't necessarily watch the full game. They watch like highlights. They are in and out and they do other things while they watch, etc. That's where digital plays a role because that's how they consume media or they consume sports. Um, and that's where you see the evolution of sports as well. If I use an example, the Olympics, some sports are coming into the Olympics because they bring different formats. Time being is short, fast, impactful, definitely more towards a younger audience than some of the traditional sport that we've seen. And that's where the digital approach comes in because you're able to then have formats that are adapted to the audience, where you can be relevant, where you can shift from the, the old model to the new model and where you can have a deeper connection as well because you understand more of the consumer, what attracts them, what is appealing for them. You learn on your own brand. If I do that type of messaging, I get no likes. Well, maybe I don't resonate with them, but if I do that, I get likes. Well, then that means here, I play with the consumer here. I don't play with the consumer. And obviously for all of us, we want to play with consumers. Yeah, they, they, are, they are the essence of our being because without them, uh, rugby doesn't exist if there's no players. And, and if we don't get people to wear our products, well, we don't exist either. So that's where digital is playing such a role. And there's obviously all the data behind digital for sure. Um, and we see it um, at, at the Olympics last year, we did some TikTok elements that really resonated with the consumer. And we felt, well, we're onto something because that's where we want to be. So that, that's where it plays. Um, but ultimately, for me, it's all about consumer obsession. When you look at digital as a sort of channel or as however you define it, the feedback loop is immediate. And, you know, as you say, it's likes, it's clicks, it's you can see it, it's tangible. And there is a question there about the there's a big and small question. Because digital, if you do lots of digital stuff and you, it's one-to-one -one, performance marketing at the bottom of the funnel, do you lose the power signal of a big Adidas or a big brand sponsorship at the top end? Because big events, big tournaments, World Cups, governing body relationships, which Adidas has done for decades and decades. Within that, there is, we are Adidas, we are power, we are a global player here. And that signal is, is different than the sort of smaller transactional relationship you might have at the bottom of the phone, one-to-one personalized marketing. The data would lead me down to, well, I'm getting lots of good feedback at the bottom of the funnel and I'm the top of the funnel is just harder to evaluate. I would say, I, I personally believe you need to do both jobs. Yeah, you, you need to continue carrying your brand identity and your brand values, mission, vision, mission, purpose of who we are. Yeah. And, and in our case, we know that our statement is to be the best sports brand. No question. And we do that because 
our way to express that is impossible is nothing. And impossible is nothing can be expressed in a big statement and in an individual statement. So as long as strategically your overarching message can be channeled down to the individual level and it ties back towards the same, then I don't think it goes against each other. And and you can't be a international brand like we are without having that statement as a brand. I think the other element that I would add is, and that's why I go back to what Rob said, is the long-term partnerships. If I look at, of course, we have new partnerships and that's part of sports. Some people, players, athletes, uh, teams are stronger or exit the category as well. I mean, uh, there's retirement as well for athletes. So you need to bring new ones. But when I look at uh, Team GB, RFU Footwear, Real Madrid, MLS, some of those entities, partners, we've been playing together for quite some time. And so you still play on the bigger picture. And then you also have through time the opportunity to go much more in depth because you're also building a deeper, stronger relationship with the consumer. So I really believe it's a yin and yang together. It's not one or the other, but it has to go through phases. And presumably, Celine, obviously different partnerships will play more at the top of the funnel with the, the big big stage exposure and, and others, which might be some more of your kind of ambassadorial style partnerships are kind of down at the towards the bottom end of the funnel where you've got athletes with hyper-engaged audiences um, that are um, obviously representing you as, as ambassadors and, and wearing your, your products and, and kind of positioning those very well. Absolutely. And, and I think we also need to consider the global partners and ambassadors and the local one. You might have some less known globally partners, but that locally allow you to really create that link to the consumer. And I mean, we just had the French Open. We in tennis, and again, staying within my lane, we have some incredible athletes uh, that are partnered with Adidas and we have three male out of the top 10, which uh, is pretty good, I would say. But we also have local ambassador like a Hugo Gaston in France who created an incredible reaction from the French audience. And he's not one of those three out of the top 10, but he still conveys the same message and builds emotion, etc. So it's, a, it's Lego pieces coming together to build the full Lego piece. Okay. I'm going to just nudge us before we move on from this. Uh, there is a crypto question here because I, which I'm interested in, uh, and this is a Rob question, really. I'm using crypto as a proxy of sort of categories that just suddenly appear spending like maniacs across the sports industry. How do you deal with this? Because is it okay, I need to fill my boots quickly or is it okay, I can't go near this category because it's scary and there's risk and reputation risk? How do you how do you manage that? And Dan, there's going to be a follow up in terms of your take on that as a as a sort of opportunity because it's the conversation. You know, you talk to anyone in sport, it goes immediately to NFTs and to crypto and to Bitcoin and you know what do mm. we do? There, there's money there. We could ignore it and lose money or lose out com- relative to our competitors or other properties, or we can go in with all of the risks that 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 carries rob just kick us off on that i'm not asking for specifics but just give me a, yeah. a sense i think you're right there's a two or three or four categories exploded in the last couple of years our, our approach is very much to tread carefully and um, we understand there's 
some significant numbers out there from certain rights holders and there's been some positive stories and some slightly less favorable stories uh, where rights holders have been burnt. I think from our perspective, we need to get it right. We Going back to my earlier point, we are the guardians of the game. We are the national governing body. So we do have to tread carefully in certain areas to make sure we're doing the right thing in terms of the right brands attached to us and also what that means for our fans, our customers, the people we engage with. So there's that side of the piece. There's also certain elements we need to consider, certainly in the NFT um, space, which is around player image rights. You know, there's fan tokens. What does that really mean? Does that add value to fans? What, you know, we don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. So I think across all of these kind of three or four areas, the best way of describing it is due diligence. Rather go slowly and get it right and rush in both feet and get burnt in 12 months' time because we've, we've We've seen this kind of golden pot in the corner. So it's all all of this area. We're actually looking in, getting some external advice. We're talking to you know other entities, um, learning from other rights holders from that matter in terms of best practice. And yeah, I'm sure we'll get there, but we'd rather go slowly than you know be front of the queue and get burnt. I think. Dan, what do you think? Because that feels like a position that I suppose many in the sports industry will, will look to, almost all waiting for the thing to be regulated more. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're seeing certainly differing approaches um, from different rights holders. Some are certainly a lot more keen and eager to to jump in there and and kind of execute on the opportunity, which is seemingly a, a very big one at the moment. Um, and we've we've started valuing kind of crypto deals and and so on already. And so we're getting kind of quite a few pricing benchmarks through through our model, which is really interesting because when you kind of break those down and start to see the kind of difference in rates which is being paid by that particular category versus other categories you can see some very kind of clear distinctions and um it was it was obviously quite a challenge at at first for us when we're kind of looking at those deals because you know it is was a bit unprecedented and some of the the values being put on the table were um were were, you know pretty eye-watering so um you know our our approach to looking at this is just going right we've, we've got to kind of seek out the best possible pricing benchmarks that we can do, see what those deals are transacting at, feed that back into our kind of valuation model, the way that we think about it, so that we can apply those to, to deals forward looking. Obviously, then there, there's definitely a, a kind of decision that needs to be taken by the rights holder. Obviously, they've got to do their due diligence if they are thinking partnering with with those brands. And and then there's a decision as to whether or not they want to or not. And like Rob alluded to, some some are treading more care cautiously and others are kind of jumping in because there's there's big opportunity there, no doubt. Celine, I've heard you in the past talking in terms of looking at properties like buying a house or, you know, you've used the getting married analogy as well. There is heart involved in that. If only you could put a data on it. There is a What's the role, I guess, I'm getting at ego in here, corporate ego. There's an element of corporate pride. There is things, okay, we want this. I really think this will work. I've got a real hunch for this. I've got a gut feel that this is what we want. We should be partnering with this group. And price is always going to be in there, but we need to be able to really land this. Do you get that? How often does that sense get you? You know, because it's easy to paint this process as a bit sort of mechanistic, there's a you know there's a model that we follow but we're human beings and people get excited about individual stars or teams or moments or whatever it is just take us through that what role does that play and how do you manage that in a big corporate entity which obviously must have the framework it's got to do all the data thing that's a good question um i'm thinking about how do i answer this one I think there is always an element of competitiveness and we speak about sport, right? So any of, I would say any of us on the call is competitive by nature and will try to get the best, being best player, best team, best 
whatsoever because that's the competitive nature of our minds and that's where ego might play and for me it's less than ego but more the competitive nature of everything that's where data plays because i'll use my how i love analogies so i use the house analogy you can outbuy a house its value is 1 million you come you say i'll buy 2 million cash I'm fairly sure that the owner will say, okay, here it is, that's yours. Hmm. It doesn't mean that's the right thing to do. And ultimately, you'll pay tax based on the value you've paid, et cetera, et cetera. So there will be consequences of the decision you've made and you've self-created because maybe that was the best one in the neighborhood and you wanted to show off to your friends. Or you approach it and you say, well, that's the value of the house. I really want it. I'm willing to put a bit more than what it is because that's what I want and what suits my strategy, my needs, my values, my all that. And that's where the data helps you to somehow manage your ego. Because if if you have that value base, I mean you can keep going. Yeah, it's it's you can. It, there's there's no limit at the end of the day. If if it's what you want, there's no limit. But you need to create that self, self-imposed limit. One because uh, financially, it has it has to find a balance, right? And it it doesn't mean that it has to be profitable all the time, but but it has to have a, a reason of being. And the other thing is because you know that once you do it once, you might have to do it many more times, yeah? Because we don't have, have just one home. We have multiple homes. And are you willing every time to outbid everyone just to get what you want? So I think, yes, you need to deal with it. But that's where the data bring you back to reality and, and down to earth with facts and being able to argue one way or the other on why is the decision right or wrong based on the emotion. And if it's really what you want, then that's your heart speaking. The mind and the heart, they come together, you figure out, you find the balance and you move forward with a decision, but at least you have that base. I so just I'm- pushing that to, it's a, it's a really interesting point. So Rob, I'm going to push this towards you because we started and I made a sort of facetious remark, which I think is true, that you want to sell at a higher price. And, mm-hmm. and if emotion is the key to getting a higher price. So if you've got someone who is emotionally engaged in rugby in the idea in the story how do you maximize that just from a you know when you're on when you're looking you you you, we're moving the deal through to the its conclusion i'm wondering if data is friend or enemy at that point if you've got someone who really really wants to to buy you want to focus much more on the heart than the head in some cases 100 percent. it's about the vision it's about how wonderful it will be we talk about the first year a lot of our potential partnership and what we're going to achieve within that getting them excited by activating some of their rights if you know hopefully at that stage it's about that kind of storytelling and final enthusiasm want for a better phrase to get them across the line at that point past hopefully not always the data points um Always a bit of data later on, I'm sure. But yeah, it's very much that. Just imagine where we could be sat in six months' time. I'm doing that at the moment. I'll be hands up now. We've got four great autumn internationals at Twickenham this autumn in November. Some of the conversations having now is you'll be there. 
we're playing New Zealand, South Africa, etc. That's where you could be. Let's park all that, call it due diligence, and let's get on to the kind of the, the fun stuff of planning the actual the, the partnership in, in in detail. How does that play with a you know do do you sell over three years? There's a sort of time span. Mm. And sometimes people come in at the, you know, there's an excitement in year one. And then, you know, traditionally, again, the cliche of sponsorship is there's a three year term in that it starts with a lot of excitement and people are thrilled. And then it's you know, at the end, there's a middle bit. And then the end <laughs> of the story is you're trying to renew and remind them how passionate they were at the beginning. So just take me through that, how, how time plays into this. And obviously you then have to fit this into the sort of sausage factory of a contract deal. But before we do that, Celine, what do you think about how you look at deals it, and it, time? It just made me laugh because it feels like you're speaking about presidential terms. The first year, you're like everyone loves you. Second and third, you kind of do what you have to do. Last one, you kind of turn around and, and make sure. And you know that's not the strategy. It, it has to be built across the years. And, and at least that's, that's the way we've done it with Rob. And uh, in that case, I speak RFU and Fitwear uh, with Adidas. It's not one day we do something, we do nothing for six months and we come back at the end. It has to be consistent across because otherwise, one, you don't get the value of the partnership. It's not a partnership. Mm. And, and two, it's about staircasing. Yeah, so, so you need to go higher, better every time in what you do and what you express and how you impact consumers' life through the relationships we have. So, it just that it, it brought me back to politics. <laughs> I felt in in the analogy, uh, which is fair, but if you do that, you don't necessarily get reelected. So everyone wants to do everything in the first couple of months. So it's actually first years get great, for, you know, foundations and build year two and three, and I think. The other bit we're not afraid to do of, um, is ask for our partners' feedback. Every year we go and get to do an annual partner survey, not only partnerships, commercial team, the wider business, and understanding where their strong relationships, where ones need improving. And, and I just feel that approach always being kind of, you know, properly integrated with our partners and asking for their feedback and actually taking that feedback and demonstrating what we're doing to improve things resonates really strongly. And hopefully that is why there's no tangible evidence of this, but, you know, anecdotally, certainly that's why we've got long-term partners that we do. So we listen and we act on it rather than it just being a transaction. And I think, naming names, but I think certain entities do fall into that category. How does the personal play into that? I always think sponsorship, the underrated bit of this is that there is a career element. I'm the person who did the deal for this. I'm on the sales side or I bought these rights. So on the buyer side, are you personally tied to you need this to be a good news story? Because if it isn't, it's going to reflect badly on you. So that plays into this, which I always think might be underrated. You don't think so, Celine? Well, it does in some form, but ultimately, I mean, in large organization, you change roles, yeah, and the partner stays. So since we've had Real Madrid, and I'll use that as an example, how many GM of footballs did we get? Many, but the partnership is still there. So yes, there is, of course, a component in the moment in time where um, if I look at tennis players right now, uh, if I look at rugby right now, of course, I haven't emotional tie uh, with the ones that I've signed um, and the one I've renewed as well, the one I've signed maybe even more than the one I've renewed, but I also know that someone else will need to look after it. And that's where that's where those partnerships are not based on individual like or dislike, 
They have to be built in line with strategy of the corporation, both entities, mm. on how does it fit. It doesn't matter if I go along well with Rob and we have um, a, a good drink together. Ultimately, when I'm gone, when he's gone, the relationship needs to still be meaningful. So I, I think that that's mm. where, for me, I go back to data, facts, value, strategy. And yes, of course, if uh, with it, it can come together, of course, but that's not the essence of it. I remember asking, um, uh, I think it's Thierry Borra or Ricardo Fort about Coca-Cola and their, its relationship with the Olympics and the World Cups, obviously, which has been going decades. And the, the individual power of an individual executive who comes in on the brand side to change a long-term relationship. And I'm, I'm always wondering the limits of like a CMO who doesn't like the Olympics at Coke. I wonder what that sort of conversation would be like, or could they then come in and say, now let's forget World Cups and Olympics. We want to go in a different direction or whether or not there is just a corporate cultural thing, which protects the brand from the CMO in that case. I don't know if it's to protect. It goes back to, and, and from my perspective, Adidas is a sport brand. Yeah? So by nature, yeah. we'll be involved with sport, more than sport, sport and culture, but with sport. Um, without comes that obsession about consumer. If one day there's no like for football anymore, no like for tennis, I'll use tennis to stick again in my line, no like for tennis anymore, then eventually we'll need to revisit how and where we invest. But, and that's where the consumer dictates more than the pure leadership. The leadership, yes, writes the strategy, but the strategy needs to be aligned with the company culture, history, legacy, and objective and ambition. So you always have a race, but I don't think it's as drastic as uh, the, the, the portrait you make of it. Okay, I'm going to finish us off by taking our conversation and just touching on what it then looks like when you announce it. The deal has been done and you go in front of the media or you push this out to the trades or you do whatever it is that you do and you want to communicate this. How does that work? Because I'm very aware as a journalist who's been on the other side of this fence a long time, is that quite often the numbers that I see coming out are either wrong or, you know, hugely inflated or people just sort of make up numbers. How do you go about communicating this? Rob or Dan, you can pick this up. What's the agenda there when something like this, because it's a good news story and you want to get it out there, but how do you go about framing it? What do you, what story do you want to tell to the, the outside world that a sponsorship has been done? I think from our perspective, certainly coming out of COVID is getting, we're open for business and deals are being done in rugby. I think that's really important for us. And I think, you know, we've got one, a, a tier two partner that we signed, quirky, January, February time, and we're only going to announce them in August, just ahead of the new season. And the reason we're going to be doing that is we really want to make sure they've got that credible, when they say they, we have got that credible piece to talk to the media and the market, and in particular, the community game, where they're going to be focusing their activation. We don't want to go out to the market and say, we've got X as our new sponsor. They're going to be working the community game. Watch your space. So we want to actually go out with what they're doing, how they're going to be doing it, and actually a plan for going back to the early conversation of what was, does the first year look like? So it gains interest, it gains traction, community game, no benefits coming their way. And we kind of make sure that all the audiences we need to talk to have something to kind of be excited about. Too often I see um, announcements just for the sake of getting a big name out there. There's a bit of a so what factor there. It's like big name, but what are they doing? And that's where we want to focus ourselves. 
I'm always wondering when numbers are put into the public domain, because obviously I come to someone like Celine and I'll say, how much is this? Was that deal worth? And she'll say, I can't say that it's corporately sensitive. And, mm. you know, uh, it would be revealing trade secrets and I won't be able to tell you <laughs> that. So I then guess and then, you know, and or get it wrong or whatever. And then if I go to Rob, Rob has got in his mind, OK, a renewal. So the bigger the number that comes into the public domain, the better from your perspective. Is that right? I, the, the actually, you don't mind a journalist getting carried away with the number and saying, right, OK, it was X millions of quid because that sets a price point for the next one. We never divulge our, our numbers. The, the only numbers we divulge is the length of the deal. Journalists and other entities do work out and figure out, given conversations we have with many organisations, many agencies, many advisors, etc., etc. So there's probably quite a lot of guesswork by people who've worked with us quite closely over many years. But um, we tend not to really comment on, on, on pricing and focus on length of the deal and what the deal involves. Is that the same for you, Celine? Yeah, pretty much. If I tell you, I'd have to kill you. That's not <laughs> like that. um, but uh, no, it's. Um, I think Rob is absolutely correct. It's about value is one component, but also people considering everything. But you have retainer, you have bonuses, like this multi-layer elements in a deal. So the number that's thrown out can represent all included. Yeah. And the number that's thrown out can include just the retainer. So the value in itself, um, I call that media bytes. Um, and ultimately, what is more important is what do you do with that relationship? And that's why, uh, maybe closing the loop, that's why it's called a partnership. It's what do you do as partner? What are the elements you want to create together? And, and, and that's much more impactful than a pure value. I think you've got to be really careful when numbers aren't shared in the media. There's never anything shared on kind of what rights were in there and what exactly the deal entailed. So, you know, we speak to a lot of people who are going, oh, well, I think I should be able to get this for this deal because that's what, you know, this rights holder got for that deal. And you're going, well, yeah, but there's so many factors that are contributing into that that um, you've got to be really careful with some of those numbers that, that are shared in the media. Because it's also, there is another, just to finish that off, but just, the obvious thing to say is that, those numbers that appear in the media are then, I've seen, processed into decks of various indices. This is how much the market price is for this, this and this. The question is whether or not you believe any of those numbers. That's, the, I guess, what you're coming down to. Celine's shaking her head furiously. We certainly avoid, whenever we're valuing deals, we certainly avoid the use of any data that's come from kind of publicly reported numbers that, you know, we're obviously all based around kind of market-based valuations and using actual pricing benchmarks that we know and that we've seen in order to kind of calculate the rates that we apply to certain rights. Um, and we only ever use kind of rates from rights that we know and we've actually seen the value, we've seen the contracts and, and we see what's in there. We obviously then anonymize all of that data so that we can apply it to forward-looking kind of contracts. But certainly, yeah, I think, yeah, as we said before, there's, there's an element of caution that needs to be taken about what numbers we read in the in the media. Not to say they're not right. Sometimes they, they, they are, but there's, there's definitely a margin of error, let's say. OK, right. I think we've got that. I think I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with the, the, the way that conversation went. So I want to thank each of you, Celine, Rob, Dan, for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure. Oh, pleasure.